It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the government's Brexit summit at Chequers and Jeremy Corbyn's latest tussles with the media. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, deputy comment editor, Miranda Green, plus Matt Zarb-Cousin, who is a former spin doctor for Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to receive it on your phone, tablet or computer every Saturday morning. It was another big and exciting week for Brexit where everything and nothing happened. After months upon months of indecision and uncertainty, Theresa May's government decided that Brexit means, quote, managed divergence. In other words, the UK will ask the EU to allow some convergence in rules and regulations in a future trade deal, as well as the ability to change things. It's a gentle compromise to hold the Conservative Party together, but will it fly in Brussels? George Parker, let's begin with Chequers. So this whole summit was very much talked up by the Conservative Party as the moment of decision, the moment at which Theresa May was going to find that end state once Britain has left the EU and left the transition. But there wasn't really too much decided. I think that's a fair way of putting it. Although from Theresa May's point of view, the important thing was the Chequers summit ended with her getting through another week. And, and getting, no one resigned. And no one resigned. And the big bust up over the Chequers dinner table and the Dexter beef didn't occur. People left in a fairly upbeat mood and people were texting me on the way out of the drive almost uh, from Chequers saying things had gone rather well and, and so on. So I think in a way that the mission is accomplished, but it's accomplished only because the really tough decisions have been kicked further down the track. What this has done is it's, it's a compromise which binds the cabinet together and I think probably the Conservative Party together for the time being. It allows Theresa May to make her long-awaited speech on the future relationship somewhere, we think, in the north of England next Friday. And so it's achieved that purpose. But really, it hasn't settled anything about the long-term relationship because this is a deal which fundamentally won't get through Brussels and I suspect will start to be unpicked by Parliament later in the autumn. Miranda Green, this sort of before we got to check is David Davis gave a speech on Wednesday, which I thought was quite significant because up until now, some people in the government have toyed with the idea of the UK becoming Singapore and going for massive amounts of deregulation and becoming a real challenger to Brussels in a way that I don't think they'd be very happy with. But the Brexit secretary stood up and said, we won't do that. We're going to maintain our economic model. We're going to maintain our rules on competition, on markets, on state aid. So in a way, what was agreed in Brussels was trailed by the Brexit secretary and people, you know, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, who are the most radical Brexiteers, didn't seem to mind that too much. No, it is quite interesting. And I agree that that bit was possibly more significant than this, what's come out of Chequers over the last 24, 48 hours, because it is the death of a particular sort of Brexit dream. You're right. So that idea that we would be a sort of offshore European Singapore. A bargain basement Brexit, to use well, Labour's depending, analogy. Indeed, depending on your political point of view, there you can either see it as a sunlit isle or a bargain basement offshore, very right-wing, deregulated nation. 
The problem is, though, that that's a tiny minority of the people that the government have got to get to accept defeat. And this far bigger issue for May herself and indeed David Davis is the idea of trying to maintain what George has described, this uneasy truce between the two sides. And what we get again and again is we get these speeches or events that are billed as the decisive moment. They turn out to be staging posts on a very, very painfully slow journey to a clear position. And, you know, will next Friday's speech from May turn out to be just another staging post because today we're told that Chequers wasn't the decisive moment. That'll be next week and we limp on. Well, I can predict that next Friday won't be the defining moment because at the moment the government is focused on one thing above all else, which is agreeing this transition deal of around two years in inverted commas, which they want to get agreed at the March European Council. That is their ultimate focus. They don't want any distraction to get in the way of that objective. And frankly, the details of this future relationship, whatever Theresa May says next Friday, will start to be hammered out in the months following the March summit. And this idea of managed divergence is all based on the three baskets, which was first um, raised in the Florence speech, I believe. And it's an idea that's come from somewhere inside the bowels of Degsu. And it's basically that the UK's regulations and what have you go into three different parts. There's the ones that will stay exactly the same after Brexit. There's the one where the UK wants total control, where it decides. And then there's ones that will fall somewhere in the middle. The problem with this approach, George is that, you know, it's cake-and-eat-it territory again, and Brussels has been very clear, you're in or you're out. And if you're out, you're a third country, and you can't really have this in-between thing that Theresa May is probably going to talk about in her speech. Yeah, and that message has been delivered through the week to Theresa May, first of all by Mark Russer, the Dutch Prime Minister, who came into 10 Downing Street to give her that message that this three-bucket approach you've just described there, Seb, won't work. He urged her not to go down that track, and she's done it, and I'm told that Mark Rutter is furious. He wonders why he bothered to actually come to Downing Street in the first place. It was made abundantly clear in a a 58-slide package produced by the European Commission. I advise readers to have a look at it if they've got a spare time over the weekend because it sets out in gory detail exactly why this pick-and-mix approach doesn't work. From the EU's point of view, there are two models. There's a free trade agreement of the kind that the EU signed with South Korea and Canada, and there's a much closer relationship of the kind that Norway has through the EEA. And Britain doesn't want to go down the Norway route. We are going to end up going down the Canada route. And another piece of advisory reading, I would say, is Martin Wolf's column in the FT on this, which said exactly this, why Britain is about to become Canada, because there isn't this hybrid model of the kind that ministers were discussing at Chequers that will fly in Brussels. And also, I mean, you've described it as cake and eat it, but also you could describe it as exactly the sort of cherry picking that the EU has always said it will not accept from Britain. And it seems to me the managed divergence actually makes it easier for the UK to think it's going to cherry pick because it's cherry picking over time, Mm. which is terrible for the negotiating partner because it means you could be exploited down the line and you also will get painful negotiations over a long period of years, which is exactly what they want to prevent. So it's kind of doomed. So the idea that here in the UK we're preoccupied with whether this compromise holds within the Conservative Party when it's not realistic that it's acceptable to Brussels anyway is slightly farcical. The one thing I would say, though, is that I think this solution will play quite well domestically because Theresa May will give her speech probably get quite a good write-up from a lot of the Brexit-supporting papers who will say this is taking back control of our trade and our regulations. She can then take it to Brussels 
And then they'll say no. And then that'll be, you know, perfidious Brussels once again, trying to stop this. So from Theresa May's perspective, I think that plays quite well. It Maybe not so great for the national interest in the economy, but it protects, you know, the Brexit supporting parts of the country. Well, this is what we've had for the last two years, the limping along that we were discussing and just the attempt to keep the whole show vaguely on the road. But a decision will have to be made and it won't be in favour of this particular idea. Well, someone who is going to make a decision, George, is Jeremy Corbyn, who, as we know, has spent much time on the fence over Brexit, has been as ambiguous as possible to try and speak to those two parts of his constituency, the provincial Brexit supporters and the metropolitan Remainers. And during last year's election, they gave a very good way of nudging, wink, wink, where a bit more Remain than the Conservatives, where in fact... They supported leaving the customs union. That's about to change, that on Monday Mr Corbyn is going to give a speech talking about a jobs first Brexit, a phrase we've heard many times before, which is going to be about creating a new customs union. But it is the same sort of thing as the customs union. How significant is this? Well, I think it's very significant because the result of Brussels rejecting the Chequers deal is that during the autumn, the House of Commons will have to come to terms with the fact that the kind of cake-and-eat-it solution that they've been offered by the Brexiteers is not going to work. And therefore, there will be a big debate about what we can do to try and protect the British economy from the worst effects of Brexit. And the solution, which the Labour Party have edged towards and has been abundantly clear to quite a few pro-Europeans on the Tory side, people like Ken Clark and Anna Subri for some time, is that we stay in the customs union. Not the single market because of all the associations with budget contributions and free movement, but the customs union. And there will be votes on this attached to a trade bill, a customs bill, and also, I suspect, later in the autumn when we get the final shape of the, the deal from Brussels. Bill as well. There will be numerous opportunities where the Labour Party can work with pro-Europeans on the Tory side to try to shift the debate. And one of the reasons why at Chequers, the soft Brexiteers in the Cabinet, people like Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, and Greg Clark, the Business Secretary, are quite relaxed at the moment is because they think Parliament will come to their rescue, that Parliament will assert its authority, Parliament won't be a bystander, and it will force Theresa May to incorporate the Customs Union as part of her offer to Brussels. And that's when the political problems really get interesting. And that's going to be very complicated for the Conservative Party, all wings of it really, Miranda, because those former Remainers, very pro-EU Conservatives, they're going to face a very big dilemma, which is, are they going to break this uneasy truce in their party and vote with Labour for something they see as in the national interest? But that will probably create something, you know, be threatened or marched out of the party or something. And on the other side of it as well, if the House of Commons backs a Brexit deal with the customs union, what does, you know, your Jacob Rees-Moggs of this world do? Do they say, OK, Parliament has spoken, we have to go along with it? Or they say, actually, forget that, let's just not have a deal and do a no-deal Brexit? It could be extremely dramatic and the action, interestingly, will return to Parliament. Um, so this idea of sovereignty will be played out Parliament is in the House back of Commons. Indeed, Parliament will be taking back control. But, and I agree with you, watching how the various wings of the Conservative Party decide to jump on this potential break point on the customs union will be absolutely crucial. However, I would just say, I don't think that we should take it for granted that this is the settled Labour view, because Labour has been, you know, they have prioritised, let's say, to put it politely, the other uneasy truce on the other side of the political divide, which is between their Leave voters and their Remain voters, as you pointed out, Seb. And the people around Jeremy Corbyn are no friends of the UK maintaining its membership of the EU or even particularly close links. And what's been going on inside the Labour Party has also been jostling 
and attempts to nudge the leadership this way and that. And that hasn't gone away. And if Corbyn on Monday doesn't say the customs union, says a customs union, and the position turns out to be a lot more woolly than it's being billed today then that jostling on the Labour side will go on. I agree, I agree with Miranda on that, that obviously they've got to balance two constituencies in the Labour Party. But in the end, Jeremy Corman doesn't like the customs union because it's associated with free trade, obviously. But the one thing he dislikes more than the customs union is the Conservative <laughs> government. And if he can see this as a wedge issue in which he can actually force the Tories out of government, I think the customs union is the principle he's prepared to put to one side in the interest of the wider Labour electorate. Now, let's just do a bit of speculative game planning about all this, about how this could pan out, because the key moment is going to be later in the year when there is that final vote on a deal, assuming there is a deal, and assuming that managed divergence flies and then drops quite quickly in Icarus-style policy, and then we're back to you know a free trade deal in the form of calendar with a few bits of pluses, but nothing massive. That deal goes for the House of Commons. What happens then, George? Because if there's no customs union attached to that and Labour still tries to do that, you know, the thing that Labour would love is if the government loses that vote on the Brexit deal, because that would be a confidence issue. And then you're into election territory. And this is where people like Lord Andrew Adonis get very excited and think (laughs) there's an opportunity to overturn Brexit. And it'll all go back to exactly how it was before June 2016. What's your gut instinct on how that's going to play out towards the end of this year? Well, the, the problem is if the deal on offer, and I suspect the deal on offer will be hedged around a bit to try to keep it as vague as possible, but if it can be discerned that the deal being offered to us is broadly the same as the Canada trade deal, Theresa May herself has said that is unacceptable. That's not good enough for Britain. Now, at that point, I suspect there will be this effort to insert the customs union into the final bill to try to offset the economic damage. And then you're into a really interesting game of chicken on the Tory side. Um, Now, the pro-Europeans will be told, if you vote for this, you're effectively going to collapse the government and bring in Jeremy Corbyn. The Ken Clarks and a Subri wing might decide that's a risk they're prepared to take because they will make the calculation that in the end, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the Tory Eurosceptics will back down because their choice on the right will be, if the customs union is inserted into the deal, you either reject it, in which case you probably bring the government down and there's a crisis, and you could lose Brexit. Or do you bite your tongue and go along with not the deal you wanted, but a deal which nevertheless gets Brexit over the line in March 2019? It's a fascinating situation. Yeah, I think it gets, when you outline that scenario, it gets less fanciful, this idea that it might not happen. Mm. Because although... Clearly, there's been a lot of debate about whether the vote in the House, they're not going to be offered this deal that none of us like very much or staying in the EU. It's this deal or nothing. But if that does then lead to a political crisis and an election, you know, you are into completely different territory. And I suppose as well, people like the Best for Britain campaign, who we've obviously read a lot about recently, their whole calculation is by the end of this year, public opinion will have changed and people will be much more sceptical. And there is the beginning of that. When you look at the polls, there does seem to be some kind of majority for having a vote on the final deal in some form. But I guess the other problem with that is, you know, if you speak to former people from the Vote Leave campaign, they're convinced they would win by an even bigger majority if you into all this again and the divisions in the country would be absolutely huge George if you went through this all over again because you wouldn't just have the will of the people you would also have this betrayal narrative of the establishment class of parliament and what have you you get really knee deep into populist politics then yeah I agree with that and um, 
I think, you know, if, if you have an interest in trying to stop Brexit, as uh, people like Tony Blair and Andrew Adonis and Nick Clegg do, I think their best approach is to keep quiet at the moment, because, as you say, that just stokes the idea that there's a plot to try and thwart the will of the people. I think in the end, it's possible that the Conservative government isn't able to deliver it, in which case people might blame the government rather than a conspiracy more generally. But you're right. Whatever happens, this this is not going to end very happily. You know, I think it is possible that Brexit isn't delivered and then we are into a very dangerous political situation. And from the country's point of view, the prospect of a very left wing Labour government coming in at a time of national political and economic crisis. Labour this week was dominated with stories about spies. Jeremy Corbyn's past contact with a former Czech agent back in the 1980s has dominated the headlines and front pages of some newspapers all week long. The whole thing had a slight feel of history repeating. We had all these stories during the 2017 general election and nothing sticked against the opposition leader. No one really seemed to care. In return, the Labour leader released a video on social media saying that change is coming to the country's media environment. Jim Picard, let's begin by just talking about this whole Czech story. It's been somewhat confusing to follow, not least because there are some real claims in there and a lot of rumour and conjecture Mm. in there. Where do you see the fact from the fiction? So to pick this apart, the original claim that turned up in The Sun over a week ago was that Jeremy Corbyn had been in touch at least once or twice in the late 1980s with a Czech diplomat stroke spy and was an inverted commas person of interest. Now, this came from the archives, the Czech archives, and is true. But a lot of weight has been put on this to imply that, therefore, Corbyn was kind of in hock with the Czech communist regime of the time. Now, the fact of the matter is that if you are a politician or indeed if you're a political journalist and you have meetings with diplomats, which happens, you'd have to be very naive not to think that some of the information you were swapping was going to go back to your respective organisations. That much is true. You know, If we have lunch with the French embassy, then of course we're trying to get information out of them. They're trying to get information out of us. It's a kind of exchange. It doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with everything that that country says or does. So leaving that one aside, the story then became more exciting when the claim occurred from the individual Czech spy who was in that book, whose name is Sarkozy, not to be confused with Nicolas Sarkozy of France. And he was making these quite exciting claims that Corbyn and other MPs were being paid around 10 grand a year each or something to actually provide this information. A much, much more serious allegation. Unfortunately, Mr Sarkozy then gave one or two interviews where he started to look like a bit of a fantasist because he was saying things like, He was asked, what did Corbyn tell you? And he said, let me tell you this. I knew what Margaret Thatcher was having for breakfast, lunch and dinner the next day and indeed what the Iron Lady was wearing. So his credibility, not very good. And therefore, the serious claim about Corbyn effectively being a foreign agent, very, very much undermined to the point of ludicrousity. The other claim, just as a sort of sideshow, there was a suggestion that there was a Stasi file kept by the East German secret police on Mr Corbyn. We know that Corbyn and Diane Abbott visited East Germany back in the day. There was a lot of right-wing commentators saying, now, because the only way to get hold of this file is if the individual concerned demands it, i.e. Corbyn, that's how we're going to get hold of it. And they were saying, why don't you go out and demand it? But I spoke to the Stasi archives on Wednesday and they came back and they said, uh, we don't normally comment on individuals, but after all this claim and counterclaim, we want to settle the matter and there is no such file. So I think where this got so much traction, Matt, was that a lot of people who disagree with Jeremy's foreign policy views saw this as kind of a way of proof 
that positions he's taken in the past were sort of somehow against the British national interest. You, know, you must remember all the stuff from the election last year where the Daily Mail, I think it was 13 pages in one day. They really went for it and listed all these things and meetings that uh, Mr Corbyn had done. So, you know, what did you make of what came out this week? I think the difference between this and what happened in the election was a lot of the stories in the election had already been done. So they've been priced in by the public. But to conclude from the election and, and on the basis and the assumption that this story about the Czech spy emanated from the number 10 or CCHQ press operation, if we work on that assumption, if they've concluded after the election that what we need actually is more negative attacks to reinforce this narrative we have about Corbyn, then you have to question really whether they actually know what the hell they're doing. I think that even if it were true, it wouldn't have much of an impact anyway. But what's happened is, and I think this is the nature, unfortunately, of the high-pressure environment that is lobby journalism, where you you have to get stories, you have to generate content, and you have single-source stories. And unfortunately, in this case, this particular single source was uh, lacking in any credibility. And really, you know, some of their claims he made were absolutely ridiculous. So that's all unravelled. And I think the consequence of that now is that they're going to struggle to land any more negative attacks. Now, it might actually be a blessing in disguise for them because I think actually it's a waste of time. I think what they need to start doing is having a debate about the country, the future of the country, about policies. Uh, and that's something thus to date that they've avoided because I think that they're concerned that they, if they get into that debate, they'll lose it. Well, I think that's the thing on Mr Corbyn's policies, that when you look at polling on things like nationalisation, which is obviously flagship policy for Labour, that stuff does well with the public. And I think that's where the Conservatives are always worried. They're also worried that if you go onto their policy terrain, you're accepting their framing of the argument. Tuition fees is an obvious example, which we heard from the Prime Minister about that this week. But I think one thing that the media did find frustrating, and I'm sure Jim will have thoughts on this, is that there wasn't any clear answers from Labour about this. Mr Corbyn didn't answer this and eventually he did respond by doing this social media video and I think you can understand why he didn't go to newspapers because as you were saying there was lots of stories some of it was sort of slightly into fancy land but why didn't he speak to broadcasters for example why didn't you do an interview with Jon Snow at Channel 4 or BBC or what have you to kind of say to a bigger audience this is what it is I don't know for certain why but my assumption would be that there's no reason for him the leader of the opposition to legitimise a story like this I think that they did very well to ensure that the story didn't reach broadcasters for about three or four days, by which point Andrew Neil ripped the Conservative argument to shreds. Uh, by that point, it had been discredited. And I think for Jeremy Corbyn to himself take the story onto broadcast would have been a huge mistake and it would have actually legitimised it. And I think this goes to a wider problem. I mean, about you know the, the tabloid press, particularly the right-wing tabloids, influencing the broadcast agenda. But I don't think Jeremy Corbyn should be enabling that particularly a story so ludicrous as this, but I do have to commend Jim's actual journalism in determining getting the response from the archives and drawing a line under the whole thing. So um, what happened on Wednesday after PMQs, the government responds to questions from the media. This happens every Wednesday. And then the Labour spokesman, it's Seamus Milne, but we just say a Labour spokesman or Corbyn spokesman. He took questions on Wednesday for 50 minutes. It was quite an epic performance And he did have some quite interesting answers to the many questions, persistent questions from political journalists that were there. And he was making the point, which I think is kind of a fair one, which is if you know anything about Jeremy Corbyn, you know that for the 30 years that he was in the background, not leading the Labour Party, his whole interest was in international affairs. And he was meeting 
people from around the world from various regimes and you may not agree with those regimes and you may not necessarily agree with the people he was meeting with but that was kind of his thing and it, it's not really that surprising that he would meet someone from the Czech regime in the 80s because that was what he was up to. I had a, an interesting tip a couple of months ago from someone who's a, a friend of Rupert Murdoch who said that Murdoch's view was that back in June uh, his newspapers, particularly The Sun, had gone far too hard on Labour and it had been counterproductive. And um, it turns out that either that message hasn't reached his editors or maybe it was a bum steer from this friend of Murdoch. But uh, what was very interesting as well earlier this week, we had on Tuesday Jeremy Corbyn at the EEF, which is a manufacturing organisation. You had all these executives from the manufacturing world. And when a Daily Mail journalist stood up and asked questions about the whole Czech spy thing, he was kind of shouted down by a load of middle-aged business people who you would have thought would be Tory supporters. And to be fair to the mail, their argument was, well, we've not had a chance to put these questions to Corbyn, so we take the opportunity whenever we can. And I totally agree with that. But interesting, I've spoken to a few people who were at that event, and they said they wanted to hear what Corbyn had to say. They liked the fact that he took questions. And they also thought, in contrast to Liam Fox, who was there, who went down incredibly badly interesting that we have Liam Fox, incredibly pro-business person, going down like a bucket of sick with a business audience. I think that's interesting about The Sun, your point there about whether they went too hard in the election. I think the influence of newspapers, particularly around election time, which is when public are more engaged with politics and paying more attention to what's going on in Westminster, I think it depends largely their influence on the veneer of objectivity. And it's almost like I feel like the right-wing tabloids, since Jeremy Corbyn has become leader, have become so polarised now, and it almost discredits them. It's like, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? It's almost like, essentially, they've become the propaganda wing of the Conservative Party, and transparently so, and I, they, I they go too far. The canary and the squawk box, who are so transparently... If Jeremy Corbyn started machine-gunning children in the street, the canary would still be saying, ah, it's the fault of the right-wing media, it's the fault of the oh, awful Theresa May. I mean, they, they are I think that's bad. going a bit far. They're as bad or worse, from my perspective, than some of the right-wing press. I would contend that they only exist because the right-wing press exist. They're a counterbalance. And I think that if there's space for the sun and the very, very right-wing platform that they provide to frame the discourse, then there's space for the canary. Like, they're two sides of the same coin. But I suppose what's interesting to me is that you have Corbyn in his video message basically implying that the mainstream media are terrible and social media is the answer to everything. Social media is good. We we all know around this table that social media is a kind of exciting... A mixed blessing, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of roller coaster ride of amazing, wonderful stuff and sometimes quite scarily inaccurate stuff going viral all the time and not a sort of brave new world, as, as Jeremy seems to suggest. I think the video that he put out this week was very interesting because... The key difference with Corbyn's media strategy and I think Ed Miliband's and perhaps New Labour's even more so is with Corbyn, the politics and the policies lead the media strategy. Whereas with New Labour and even with Ed Miliband, who is ostensibly left wing and very much a supporter of the Corbyn project, the media strategy led the politics. So when that happens, the policies and the politics adapt to fit the narrative and the framing of the right-wing newspapers and they do so to, to try and get positive coverage and when that happens you you water down your offering and that didn't happen with Corbyn and you know it created an, an antagonism and when the broadcast election rules uh, kicked in and Labour could speak with their own voice 
and put forward their policies, it, they weren't watered down. It was, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tax these people to pay for this thing. And it forces the Tories then to say, we're not going to tax these people because we don't want to pay for this thing. And that sets the agenda. Let's not forget that it's still a massive generational divide. And if you're over 50, you're much more likely to be being influenced still by Mail, Telegraph, Express, whoever. And if you're under 35, they're basically irrelevant to an awful lot of people. And as we all get older and as we increasingly use social media and move away, it's, it's a trend that's going to continue. But you think how much reach the Daily Mail Online has. It's one of the five biggest news websites in the world. And you also look at the referendum. I still don't think that the referendum would have gone the way it did if it wasn't for the immense clout of the sun and the mail. And I suppose what you're really getting to here, Matt, is about playing the media game in a way, that, you know, in the triangulation of policies, which is what Ed Miliband did. And I think one interesting example of that is if you take the energy price cap that was his big policy. I remember that that Labour conference when it was announced and the Daily Mail came out and said, you know, this was quasi Marxist market intervention. And then obviously a couple of years later, Theresa May announces that and, and it therefore comes out as, oh, isn't this wonderful helping consumers? So I suppose in a way to those in the Corbyn project, when you look at that, that's proof of there's no point in playing this game because they're not interested, you know. Is that what it's about in a way? But do you worry that if you get to a next election and the print media will still have influence there? And it's Jim's point about age there that you can't ignore it entirely. You know, obviously Jeremy plays ball with The Guardian in some respects, I'm sure. Of course. Look, I think that's a very good point about the energy price cap. And I think that is a very good illustration. I think another one would have been, I think one of his policies was uh, having a public rail provider competing in the same market as the private providers rather than nationalising rail. So the price cap on energy instead of nationalising energy, right? So, yeah, it waters it down and the press are still going to caricature you as being a dangerous left-wing Marxist. So you might as well argue from a left-wing perspective that's more coherent, that's clearer. And I do take your point, Jim, about the influence of the press. I think it absolutely does influence people who are perhaps 50-plus, but the Tories have lost... The crucial demographic, I think, which is young families, which is the 25 to... The 35 to, year 35 olds, to yeah. 44, yeah. And those people used to read newspapers. Perhaps they're reading them less now. But I think the difference in the referendum campaign was this is a sustained 20-year campaign by the right-wing press against the EU. And a lot of our discourse, a lot of our discussions and debates are framed around that, like around that agenda, anti-immigration, you know... Bendy. Yeah, and I, I feel like with the Czech spy thing... It felt to me as if certain journalists and media organisations were desperate for it to be true. And you could almost feel that desperation coming off the story like he, he must be a Czech spy or something. If, if we just keep <laughs> writing it and probing it, surely the evidence will come out. And it, it never quite did convincingly in the end. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, having worked for the Corbyn team not that long ago, the comparison that people make with Trump, in the internal discussions, was there a deliberate comparison like you saw how Trump used the anti-media sentiment as a form of strength. Was it deliberate or was it just a kind of coincidence that you've gone down the same playbook, basically? I think more inspired by Bernie Sanders and his use of social media and uh, compelling videos that tell a story. I think the last two Labour Party political broadcasts have been excellent and it's in that mould. Obviously, Bernie Sanders used social media very effectively and the press being against you can be 
turn to your advantage if you portray them as being part of the establishment vested interests, the 1%. Well, that's, I think, a sign of the political times we're in with Brexit and the crash, whatever. This very finally, Matt, last thing I want to ask you is that obviously Mr Corbyn released this video we talked about in response and tried to make light of all the claims. But it had this line, changes coming, and that was obviously his a reference to media ownership and, med- and, and all that sort of thing. And there was a suggestion by Andrew Gwynn who's one uh, shadow cabinet spokesman who said that we might look at foreign ownership of newspapers, for example. And you can see why that worries people, because it makes people think, well, hang on a minute, actually. Jeremy says he believes in a free press and a press doing its job. It's very important part of society. But then he's saying, on the other hand, we're actually going to come in and do more regulation. And, you know, there was a suggestion, I think, from a journalist that we bring in Leveson too, look at foreign ownership, look at all sorts of different things, which would actually restrict how the traditional press can operate. Uh, Jeremy's a believer in the free press, but obviously media monopolies and the vested interests that own newspapers, particularly billionaire tax exiles, that is a big problem. And that that, that is, is that really go, that goes against free, that, freedom of press, you know. Well, it, you're not talking about stopping journalists running stories or having that freedom, journalistic freedom. What you're talking about is plurality of media ownership, which would prevent this. We've seen this sort of... Um, monopolization of ideas almost the biggest newspapers are all owned by people who have very similar interests and economic backgrounds and i think that that is a problem i think that there should be much more media plurality and you would get a more diverse views that way and you'd actually probably give journalists more freedom because at the moment lots of journalists work for right-wing newspapers and they probably don't believe what they're writing but i, do, I feel at the same time though that corbyn is kind of legitimizing the sort of suppression of the idea of journalism as a as a good force. He's sort of allowing people who don't like the free press for whatever reason. He's sort of enforcing that idea that, that a lot of what we do is worthless. And it it kind of reminds me of the SNP during the referendum campaign where the BBC were getting shouted down just for trying to do their kind of neutral job. There, I'm I'm just not quite sure where it ends in terms of the legitimization of the free press by people who've had a tough time from it. I think that there's been a delegitimization of the Corbyn project and the left from the moment he's been elected and before as well. And obviously that this is not an act of vengeance or anything like that. What he's saying is we have to do something to ensure that the press is more free. And sometimes, as we know, intervention in markets that are monopolizing and protected uh, sometimes creates a more free market and a more perfect market. And I think that... that what he was saying about this goes to the heart of the, the issue, really, the, the contradiction in the Tory argument as well, which is that they can say that they stand up for a free press. But at the end of the day, they prevented The Guardian running the stuff on Snowden. They deleted the hard drives. They confiscated laptops. This cuts both ways. When there's real journalism, sometimes that's suppressed as well. And we'll have to leave that there. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Jim, Matt and Miranda for joining us. If you'd like to hear more about where the Brexit negotiations are going, don't forget to look up our Brexit Unspun podcast, which is also available on all the usual apps. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Denner. So until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.